This is an ABC podcast. Bulavanaka, good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Melissa Macon. Today on the show, a damning new report finds nearly 4 million Pacific children are at risk of missing out on an education due to climate disasters. I need people to start realising that this is not only something written on a report and a paper. This is the reality we are living in. Police in Papua New Guinea continue investigations into an Australian man's death at Kokoda. Uh, we need to look at in the future whether we, we set some sort of uh, criteria for rent, for uh, trackers to, uh, to walk on the track. Or... And you'll hear from all-round funny guy, comedian James Nikise about what makes him tick. If you love your community, if you love your country, if you love your family, then you can critique it because you're trying to do it in a way which uplifts rather than beat down. More on those stories coming up. Nearly 4 million Pacific children risk losing access to education due to cyclones and sea level rise. That's the warning in a report by Plan International, which says climate change and extreme weather are disrupting the future of the region's young people. As Dubrovka Volodair reports, it's a situation many on the ground are facing daily. It's a school day, but for Janet Yatiknu's kids... They'll be back home by lunchtime. The problem that she goes to school have a day because we don't have uh, enough food to support them, like the garden, vegetables that we grow all damaged. What we have in the in our home now is just cassava and a coconut milk on top, or just to boil a rice and just a tin of uh, tuna or something like that. Janet Yatiknu lives on the island of Tana in Vanuatu with her five children. In February, two Category 4 cyclones swept through the area, destroying homes, displacing families and uprooting food gardens. The winds have gone, but their damage remains. The road that the children walk to school is just muddy, they can't walk to school every day. It's raining and raining and it's very hard for the children to go to school now. Janet's experience is similar to that of many other families in the Pacific who struggle to send their children to classes after cyclones and other disasters. The data from the report shows that 3.8 million children in the Pacific are at risk of losing access to education due to climate change, disaster and emergencies. Suzanne Legena is from Plan International. So without access to education, the risk is that you're missing out on an entire generation of children and their capacity to contribute to your economy and your society. She says the impact of disasters on learning can be both short and long term. We know that from tropical cyclone Yasa in Fiji in 2021, while there were 100 schools damaged, children are still learning in some makeshift tents. So it can have long-term effects as well. And the education of girls is often more at risk. If your school closes because of an emergency, we know from previous data that at least a third of girls may not return to school. Once they're taken out of school and are put on to, you know, doing chores at home or employed in helping their families in other ways, they don't actually return to school. 
The charity's Pacific Disaster Risk Management Manager, Josefa Lalambalavu, says missing school and teen pregnancies can in some cases be linked. For instance, in PNG, there are 65 births per 1,000 for girls aged between 15 to 19. And if we look in Vanuatu, there's 66 births per 1,000 young girls. When girls are unable to return to school due to natural disasters, these are some of the impacts, so their risk of unplanned pregnancy and early marriages increases. Flora Vano in Vanuatu is at the forefront, helping women and children deal with the effects of climate change. She says the report's findings are shocking. Four million is too much. We might probably double that in the next decade because the increase of cyclone it will keep on coming. And I'm scared. I'm really frightened of the words that I'm saying right now because I need people to start realizing that this is not only something written on a report and a paper. This is the reality we are living in. Janet Yatiknu and Tana is hoping their lives can soon return to normal. And that means a full school day for her five children. They need to go to have a full day class because when it comes to exams or at the end of the, uh, the year, we know our children can, can be successful. But if not, I don't think they'll be successful at the end of the year. That's Janet Iatiknu from Tana ending that report by Dubravka Volodair. Well, in a month from now, the citizens of Timor-Leste will head to the polls to vote in a national election. It comes at a crucial time, with warnings that the young nation is in danger of plunging off a fiscal cliff. As Marion Farr reports, campaigning begins officially today, but some voters are worried that the main candidates will be too focused on the past. A 21st birthday is something to celebrate. And for Timor-Leste, that celebration will be marked with a national election. For this nation, I think that's a very important moment for the people. Timorese citizen Emmanuel Viana is looking forward to voting when his country heads to the polls next month. Our official language, like in Portuguese, we say festa da democracia. It's mean like a party in the democracy, you know. A party it may be, but for Timor-Leste, the right to govern itself has been hard won. After centuries of Portuguese rule, the country was invaded by Indonesia in 1975. It's estimated that around a quarter of the Timorese population were killed during the brutal struggle for sovereignty that followed before the country finally achieved independence in 2002. 21 years on, the resistance is still at the heart of politics. I think majority of the party that existed today, they're just focusing on, on the history itself. The two main contenders are both former resistance leaders. Jajana Guzmao, who heads up the CNRT party, is a former rebel fighter who was the country's first ever president and its fourth prime minister. His lifelong political rival is Fretilin leader Mari Alkatiri, also an independence leader and Timor-Leste's first prime minister. The pair are now in a battle for another shot at being the PM. Andrea Fahey, an expert in Timorese politics from the Australian National University, says it's going to be a tough fight. This is historical, right? Like even before independence, Akatir was one of the Timorese intelligentsia that were uh, expatriated in uh, Portuguese ex-colonies. 
And he tends to represent that old, threatening kind of thought. And then Shanana tended to be more like the revolutionary, the person that stayed to fight in the country. Official campaigning begins today with 17 parties in the race. The campaigns tend to be like a party. They're very happy celebrations. It's one of the most interesting places I have ever seen elections happening. Electoral rallies are uh, very energetic and very uh, very interesting places to be. But despite the joyous mood, there's a lot at stake. The country's key source of revenue, the Bayou Undan oil and gas field, is expected to dry up later this year. And without an additional income, it could actually very soon send the, the Timorese in, into a crisis, definitely an economic crisis and likely a political crisis. The International Monetary Fund has warned the country is heading towards the edge of a fiscal cliff if the situation isn't resolved. One potential saviour lies in the Greater Sunrise oil and gas field, located in the Timor Sea. The project has been stalled for many years, partly because the nation has been unable to reach an agreement with partner Woodside Energy. Timor Leste wants to process the oil and gas domestically, but to do that, it would need to build expensive infrastructure. Ms. Faye says negotiating a deal will be crucial for the country's future. At the price of oil at this moment is very viable. It also brings with it the promise of local jobs, a key issue for Timorese citizen Jose Maria da Silva. He's left his home country to work overseas. Like they should offer a much more bigger job in our own country. Mr De Silva is employed in a meat processing factory in Australia and while he enjoys the income, he misses his home. Like I want to stay and live together with my family, which is actually I work in my country, serve my country. For Dili resident Zido Santos, health and climate change will be front of mind. This upcoming election is important. It brings new hope after the COVID, after the flood in 2021. While young voters like Lobidas Alves want to see a campaign that is focused on the future. They have to show us their vision, their programs, that what they want to do for this country for the, for the five years. But the issue is that they, they are not telling the, the program, but they are telling the stories that what they have been done in the past. That was young Timorese voter Lobidas Alves ending Marion Farr's report. Papua New Guinea, where police are investigating the death of an Australian man on the famous Kokoda track. The 48-year-old collapsed during the 96-kilometre trek and had to be rushed to hospital. Julius Wagirai is the CEO of Kokoda Track Authority. It's a very unfortunate thing that uh, I, I just don't have anything to say on that. Uh, I am not, uh, I cannot say anything on, on that, but uh, you know, I think that's something that uh, we need to look at in the future, whether we, we set some sort of uh, criteria for, range, for uh, trekkers to, uh, to walk on the trek. Or, yeah, I think it's giving us some sort of uh, uh, information on how we can also manage uh, that sort of situation in the future. So what's happened since you've spoken to police, what are they going to be doing? Uh, they've started the investigation and um, um, they are currently 
heading for the track now, as we speak. As in police from central province? Central province, yeah. yes. The central provincial police, uh, CID. Uh, they, they're trying to, uh, uh, not with the workers, but trying to collect information from the villagers and those people that were involved, also from the Kokoda, Adventure Kokoda, and, and from others. They've come around to see me uh, uh, this morning, and they are just going up on the track. They'll come back uh, uh, after they, they return, yeah. Do you know roughly how long that might take? It will depend on, 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 on their, uh, their timing. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't tell you how long it will. At the moment, I'm, we are waiting for that investigation report to be completed. That's it. We can't. I can't say anything uh, on what will. But I think that investigation report will definitely give us a leeway on moving forward. Well, I, I'm just. Uh, I feel for the the family of of, of, of the the deceased, and uh, I. Hope to, uh, I hope to, to, to talk to the uh, Adventure Kokoda and we need to sort this thing out. I think uh, um, we need to all cooperate with the police to uh, provide information in order for us to complete everything. Yes, I think that's, that's all what I can say. That was Julius Wagirai, CEO of the Kokoda Track Authority, and he was speaking there to the ABC's PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time you go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I've never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. It's time for a look at what's making news around the Pacific region. Joining me in the studio this morning is Pacific Beat executive producer, Evan Wasuka. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Let's start in Vanuatu, where police have made an arrest about a Facebook video. What's happening there? Yes, so several weeks ago, there was a video that went viral among Vanuatu and Pacific users. It showed a woman beating up another younger woman. Now, that Facebook video got shared multiple times, and it it created a bit of stir with calls for authorities to step in and to do something about this uh, video. Well, the Vanuatu Broadcasting Corporation is reporting that police have since arrested a woman on the island of Tana for assault in relation to this particular case. Now, Chief Inspector David Bong says uh, assault charges have been laid and the woman has been remanded in custody and is uh, awaiting trial. Uh, Commander Bong from Vanuatu Police says it's their priority, uh, they're making it a priority to respond to these type of assaults, especially uh, cases dealing with um, online and social media uh, situations. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds terrible. Let's head to Fiji, where the World Bank is coming down hard on the government over its growing debt. What's happening? Yeah, so Melissa, with this story, Reuters, the news agency is reporting that the World Bank is warning Fiji that it needs to urgently reduce its debt 
because its debt burden is around 90% more than its gross domestic product. Basically, it owes a lot more than it's actually making in terms of GDP. Now, the World Bank is saying that Fiji, if Fiji doesn't make changes, this will affect its COVID-19 pandemic recovery plans, and it'll make it harder for like, looking into the future for sustainable economic development. Uh, so these findings are part of the World Bank's uh, Fiji Public Expenditure Report 2023. Yeah, debt has been a big issue in the region for a very long time. How did, how did Fiji find itself in this position? So the World Bank says Fiji's debt has been growing since 2019, and then it really went bad uh, when COVID-19 hit, just like in other countries, I suppose. But Fiji really felt that impact of COVID-19 and the international border closures because Fiji really relies heavily on tourism, which is its main economic earner. So no tourists, no flights. That's really bad for the economy. We saw all those layoffs at Fiji uh, Air, 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 FEG, and all those tourist um, hotels. Um, so who does Fiji owe money to in terms of debt? Well, it actually owes money back to the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, China, Japan, and the European Union. Gosh, that's a lot of people to to be paying back. There's a proposal for a new marine sanctuary. Uh, Who's doing the proposing and where will it be? So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, otherwise known as NOAA, is the one doing the proposal. Uh, So NOAA is the US scientific agency that looks after weather, climate and the environment. So it's proposing a 1.2 million square kilometres of the Pacific Ocean to be used as a marine sanctuary for protection of corals, fish, marine life, and seabirds. And it'll be in this area known as the Pacific Remote Islands, which is U.S. territory, and it's uh, part of it uh, near Hawaii, and it covers Johnson Atoll and Wake Atoll, uh, so further up north in the northern part of the Pacific. Um, What's different about this proposal is that it's been made public and they're calling for um, public comments uh, and feedback before it becomes uh, a a designated sanctuary, I guess. Uh, So it's it's open for public comment until June the 3rd and there'll be also meetings in – public meetings in Hawaii, Guam, Northern Marianas and American Samoa for this and all these – public feedback will go into this environmental impact statement for NOAA to decide on this new proposed sanctuary. Interesting. I guess, yeah, with all the talks of deep sea mining happening, I mean, a marine sanctuary probably sounds like a nice way to to balance that out or, yeah, gosh. Thank you so much for, for bringing us the latest headlines in the region. Thank you, Melissa. It's Wednesday the 19th of April and you're listening to Pacific Beat on Radio Australia. Look, we've got lots going on around the region today, but there's still plenty more to get through. You'll find out why the number of Pacific labourers in Australia is soaring. And we'll sit down with Samoan New Zealand comedian James Nakise, who's serving up comedy gold at Melbourne's annual festival this month. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
The number of Pacific labourers in the in Australia has reached the thirty five thousand dollar uh, sorry thirty five thousand target, about six months ahead of schedule. Australia's Assistant Minister for Trade, Tim Ayres, says the government is looking at other ways to help bolster Pacific economic, uh, economies, including in trade. He recently took part in the Australian Solomons Business Forum in Brisbane, where listening to Pacific businesses was top of his agenda. We want to continue to deepen the trading relationship. There, there are enormous uh, opportunities here. You know, we, we, want, to, we want to participate uh, and support in the uh, economic development in the Solomons. We want a strong two-way trade, uh, exports of goods and services from Australia to the Solomons uh, and imports of Solomon Islander goods and services into Australia. We want to keep strengthening the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme too um, to make sure that there's you know real opportunities for jobs and skills and economic development there. You know, these are... These are uh, big opportunities for both countries. Um, we're in this region together forever, uh, and uh, and there's enormous uh, mutual benefit uh, in making sure that we uh, that we strengthen and deepen the trading relationship. Are, are there any particular areas where you think Solomon Islands businesses could excel in or could find uh, room for growth in Australia? Well, Evan, I'm here to listen uh, to businesses uh, from both Australia and the Solomons where they think the opportunities are. You know, this, I'm not, not here to uh, to uh, deliver a lecture um, about where the opportunities should be. I, I want to listen to Solomon Islands businesses uh, and the government of the Solomon Islands about, about where the opportunities are. You know, Australia is the biggest investor in infrastructure uh, in the Solomons. We're, we're, we're investing in infrastructure to help support Solomon's uh, development to help support Solomon's uh, resilience and sovereignty uh, and to support the welfare of the Solomon's Island people more broadly. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, core business for Australia uh, in the Pacific. Uh, there, are, there are opportunities to expand our trade um, and with that comes uh, opportunity and jobs and, uh, and there are opportunities to keep working together on the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme uh, that has been an enormous benefit for uh, for families and communities in the Solomon Islands. You know, fifteen million dollars a month of uh, of remittances, and we can continue to deepen that work uh, and expand that work uh, and make sure that you know Solomon Islands workers are returning to the Solomon Islands with new skills and new capabilities as well as income. Uh, that that supports the development of uh, of their communities as well. So you know there is the sky's the limit really in the relationship between the two countries, and we just need to keep listening to each other and keep the careful work going on to make sure that there is broad benefits in the Solomon Islands in the relationship. In terms of the labour mobility scheme, are you expecting it to grow even further with more demand uh, for workers from Solomon Islands and other Pacific countries in the coming year? Well, we've made good progress. Uh, the, the government uh, has reached the 35,000 uh, target six months ahead of schedule. There's 5,000 workers in Australia from uh, the Solomon Islands. Uh, so that's, uh, that's good. Uh, I'm listening carefully to, uh, to uh, the governments uh, across the Pacific about, uh, about what they want to get, what, what they want to secure from the Pacific 
Labor Mobility Scheme. And Minister Conroy, Pat Conroy, who's working very hard on these issues, will continue to engage. We want to keep building this scheme and make sure that it's a benefit to the workers who participate, a benefit to uh, the businesses in Australia who employ them, but also of lasting benefit for Pacific Island nations and communities. Uh, We're focused on those objectives. We're genuine and serious about continuing to meet those objectives and we'll keep working with uh, with governments like the government of the Solomon Islands to make sure we deliver. Often in the headlines we see talks of geopolitics and diplomacy, uh, but trade, areas around trade uh, are often not in the headlines. But how important is trade with uh, trade for Australia with the Pacific? How important is that for its future? Well, well, well trade is about resilience. Trade's about economic self-determination. Trade's about mutual benefit uh, and and economic growth uh, and about securing good jobs uh, in uh, Pacific Island communities and nations uh, and in Australian, uh, in Australian workplaces as well. This is one of the areas of the strongest mutual benefit. You know, the Pacific faces... Uh, you know, very significant challenges on the trade front. Uh, the uh, distance, uh, economic development, uh, means that we need to support each other, back each other on trade uh, and the opportunities. And it's, I really welcome the discussions I've had so far um, in, in terms of, you know, ongoing development of the PESA Plus agreement, the principal trade agreement between Australia and New Zealand and Pacific Island nations continuing to deepen that work and make sure that it delivers and that we've got a pathway for continued development. Now, this is this is where we can really uh, develop these relations for mutual benefit and, and I really look forward to the opportunities more broadly, but today in particular uh, with the government of the Solomon Islands and the business community here working through, you know, what the next round of opportunities um, uh, really are. That was Tim Ayres, Assistant Minister for Trade Australia, and he was speaking there to the ABC's Evan Wasuka. James Nakise is a Samoan New Zealand writer, comedian, actor and podcaster. While his shows are comedy gold, they also touch on more serious issues in the Pacific diaspora, including religion, discrimination and mental health. James is here in Australia performing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and after watching his show, Goddamn Fancy Man, I just had to find out more about what makes him tick. Kia ora. Goddamn Fancy Man came about as a response to a view of a few events in my life that had happened, which um, were quite surreal. So protesting Donald Trump on a Scottish beach and getting involved in, in debates and political debates I, um, I didn't feel I was supposed to be in because I don't think I'm political. And then a few mental health issues, uh, which resulted in me having a podcast. Um, I'm trying not to give away spoilers. It, it, it's weirdly pertinent still, which uh, is kind of sad because I, I wrote it four years ago um, and performed it for the first time in New Zealand in 2019. And then I've just been slowly touring it through the apocalypse we've been living through and finally got to Melbourne. You said it's, it's kind of like this journey of being a, a mixed race Pacific Islander trying to make sense of the world in a time of decolonization. Yeah, mixed race kid from a colony in a time of decolonization. What are some of those 
elements of the show that well, force I, people to gra- grapple with their privilege. <laughs> yeah, look, um, I think uh, uh, also listeners, it's very funny. I just want to, you know, I don't know Melissa's doing a great job here of selling me. It's also very funny. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a washing machine you feel like you've been in, but it's a funny washing machine. One of the points I tried to get across is, you know, we always have people going, oh, I'm not political. Or, oh, I don't want to be involved in politics. And that's not a choice. It's a privilege because for a lot of people, you don't, you don't get to say whether you're political or not because your lifestyle or your background means that political issues are coming at you whether you want to or not. And that brings a certain level of stress. And so a lot of my show is highlighting the ridiculousness in those situations. And because I'm from the Pacific region in a time where the United States and China are kicking off and and that looks like it's going to be like a battleground, you just end up being brought into um, political conversations. Are you not sick of every year, like Maori Language Week, Matsuriki, Waitangi Day, there's always some dude, it's always a dude coming out going, what is, what is Maori language ever done for New Zealand? And, and that takes energy in that. So again, I'm just like highlighting the ridiculousness and trying to show how fun it can still be to engage in these topics. The Australia-New Zealand kind of rivalry is a, is a big feature in your show, also homophobia in our communities. I mean, but you, you sort of tell it with so much love for your for your family and in, in particular your father who had quite a senior role within the church. That's a, a privilege that my father gave me is that he has been a shield for me to the greater Pacific community. So he always said, go say what you say. I'm theologically educated by my dad. He's, um, you know, and I know how to argue the theological sides against homophobia. My father believes in human rights and he didn't want me unarmed going into conversations. Um, And that can take people by surprise. Um, And I think what's been interesting is, you know, from my dad's point of view, I'm just a guy telling jokes on stage. Now, he grew up as a Pacific Islander in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and that community had real traumas coming at them uh, in New Zealand and in Australia. So what what does it matter if his son is making jokes with a funny voice about him on stage? That's not the worst thing. That's not even close to the worst thing he's experienced. And if people come at him and go, did you hear what your son said about gay people being accepted in the church, dad will turn around and go, yeah, and show me the passage. You know, if you're going to come at me, bring your Bible verse, but you you better know it better than I do. And few people I've met come close to knowing it as well as he does. So I'm not actually uh, Maori myself. A lot of people think I'm Maori because I'm from New Zealand. I'm not one of the indigenous people there. I'm a Samoan or Samoan. Uh, so, <laughs> like to tell me how to say my country's name. Bless you all. I also say like when I critique, I think the best critique comes from love. If you love your community, if you love your country, if you love your family, then you can critique it because you're trying to do it like in a, in a way which uplifts rather than beat down. People can get if you if you're constantly beating down, then people can get lost in the anger of it all. But if you're critiquing with with a love of your subject, no matter what that subject is, then you'll you'll find a way to make it joyful and lighter. But the point is that the haka is magnificent and powerful and a little intimidating. But part of that power is because it's in Tadeo, because the haka would suck in English. <laughs> All right, we're going to do our challenge. 
It's time for the challenge. Australia, are you ready for this challenge? Here we go. Okay. We were in the audience. Mm. I can reveal that. Were we the only Polynesians in the room throughout your entire show? Yeah. <laughs> you weren't the first of the whole run, but it changes the dynamic. Um, when there are Pacific people there. For my own personal satisfaction, I'll throw in jokes for the Pacific people um, because I don't know what their diaspora experience is. And I think sometimes that's that's quite rewarding as a Pacific person to be a performer who you know, put some stuff and they go, I know what that is, even if the rest of the crowd doesn't. You know. But for the crowd, I think it's also really fun because then it's, it validates what I'm telling them. You know, when, when I drop a line... Uh, about something which sounds like out there from the Pacific experience and you guys are laughing the hardest because you're like, oh my gosh, that is that is what it is. Then you get an extra laugh from the non-Pacific people and they're not laughing at the the Pacific community. They're laughing at the joy of recognition because that's actually the, the empathetic connection between everyone's cultures. Your show also is a little bit dark. Why did you feel it was important to bring that honestly emo experience into your comedy show? Um, thank you for just very dark time in my life and just making it sound like uh, I was a little emo. Um, and look, fair. In New Zealand, in the Pacific community, we have mental health issues like every other community, but we also have issues in talking about mental health issues. Now I'm in my late 30s, which means uh, I've got a bit of life experience, but I th- also think um, it, it puts a bit of responsibility to be the bridge between the older generation who have really struggled to talk about this kind of stuff and a younger generation who desperately wants to talk about this but don't necessarily know how. And so what I try and do is I do bring up some, you know, dark personal experiences, but I try and, again, present it as ridiculous, show that in hindsight, it, you know, while, while painful, um, there is joy to be, to be found in the journey of healing and in talking about it. I always try and go and make things light because I don't think I have the answers. I think one of the gifts that the arts do, whether it's you know music or comedy, or for some people it's theater, for some people it's even dance, is it allows us to open ourselves up and be vulnerable and engage with whatever emotional stuff we've got going on. So yeah, I mean, like you say, mental health, it's, it's no joke, but I think through humor, uh, and we've been learning this like the past decade, it's like the sugar that goes with the medicine, you know? It, it just makes it easier to digest uh, and, and and talk about it. In the region, there's obviously incredible Pacific comedians, but you've also cut into other markets and you've won awards. Is it becoming a bit more diverse? When we talk about representation, one thing we don't necessarily talk about is young people. I mean like teenagers who are picking their paths and seeing an actual pathway to becoming the person they want to be in, a, in an industry. All right? It's not as simple as just putting someone from a background into a job and you've fixed it. You've got to show the next generation coming up that there's a pathway to getting in there. Um, because otherwise people won't be interested. The Pacific comedy scene is young. 
in terms of stand-up. Everyone listening to this probably knows Pacific Islanders, and those Pacific Islanders are probably incredibly funny within this. So, you know, comedy isn't new to Pacific people. Performing comedy is a paid job, is newish. But because it's young, it's catching on on the young media. So actually, there's a lot of great Pacific comics who don't necessarily do live performance, but are killing it on social media. You know, TikTok, Instagram, they're going to be the next generation of funny media stars that you see coming through from the Pacific. The trick will be larger organizations like this one finding a way to not just get them to be involved, but to get them to feel that they can take, if they want to, that next step. People at production level, people at director level, because then you get Pacific eyes on Pacific stories, making Pacific stories. That was the wonderful James Nikisa, and he's performing for the rest of the week as part of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Well, a giant expanse of floating rubbish in the Pacific Ocean has come alive, with scientists finding coastal creatures like crabs making it their home. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch covers more than one and a half million square kilometres of ocean between California and Hawaii. Australian experts say although the oceanic rubbish bin is offering the coastal critters a home, it's another reminder of the ongoing threat of marine waste. Stephanie Smale reports. The enormous Great Pacific Garbage Patch doesn't look like your average rubbish dump. It's not this island that you can walk on. It's not this solid mass. If anything, we really kind of describe it as a plastic soup. CSIRO Principal Research Scientist and Plastic Pollution Expert, Britta Denise Hardesty, wasn't surprised by news there are creatures living on it, pointing out the so-called plastosphere that exists on the patch first popped up a decade ago. But this study, published by the Nature Ecology and Evolution Journal, shows 105 pieces of plastic were fished out of the Great Pacific garbage patch with nearly 500 invertebrates clinging onto them. Denise Hardesty says it's most likely the creatures attached to the rubbish when it was ashore, then floated out to sea. In the paper, they have a photograph of a toothbrush and bottles, as well as fish traps and the types of fish traps and ropes and buoys and things that they show are those that are used in more coastal environments. So they could have also been discarded or lost from vessels at sea. 46 species were found clinging to the floating trash from tiny crabs to sea anemones. Scientists from the Smithsonian Environmental Research Centre and other United States and Canadian research groups identified that most of them usually live along coastlines. Denise Hardesty says there is still a long list of unanswered questions about whether animals living on and in the so-called plastic soup is a good or a bad thing. Do we really want species to be ending up in places where they don't necessarily belong? due to changes in human practices and transportation and that sort of thing, which is really what we're talking about here. Is this a reminder about how much plastic waste has become part of our world? I think it's a really good and clear reminder. And I think one of the ways to perhaps consider this or to contextualize it is, do we really want to be using plastic in our environment as our marine sentinel of the health of our ecosystems? Species that are invading or moving to other areas becomes yet another poignant reminder of the ubiquity 
of what we use in terms of plastic and where it ends up out there in the environment. But she is confident the slow shift away from plastics around the world is starting to take hold. We're also seeing new technologies, we're seeing new approaches, and we're seeing increased commitments from around the world to really tackle and to address the problem. The Plastics Campaign Manager for the Australian Marine Conservation Society, Shane Kukow, isn't as optimistic. Uh, We're on track to see the amount of plastic in our oceans triple in the next 20 years. Now, that's terrifying. Um, we already know that it's causing widespread harm, but the, the amount of plastic that we're using and it's being lost is going up, not down. He points out double the amount of plastic that's being recycled is ending up in the ocean and policy change is just beginning. But it's going to be a long road, unfortunately. While we've had nations like Australia move to do things like ban some of the single-use plastics that are most likely to be ending up in our oceans, other countries haven't even started that journey. That was Shane Kukow from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Stephanie Smale reporting. Several Ni Vanuatu workers employed under New Zealand's seasonal employer scheme recently took part in a two-week art exhibition at the Marlborough Art Gallery in the country's South Island. The Marlborough Arts Society organised the exhibition to showcase the many cultures from around the world who participate in the horticulture industry. This includes workers from Fiji, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. William Bulle told Carolyn Tiraman he was privileged to show his culture through art. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the exhibition that was hosted by the Marlborough Art Gallery. and The exhibition was called Cultural Kaleidoscope. And it included all the immigrants and all the people who came overseas to New Zealand to help develop, and some were here uh, residents. And we had to show our culture from back home. And what we did was we showed our culture in the form of art. And we painted all the things that was cultural to us, was, was our tradition, and we painted them. And we did little art pieces and it was exhibited in March 11 to 26. It was two weeks and we was very happy. For me, I painted a traditional drum from back in Vanuatu. It, uh, we call it the tam-tam, totem pole with a hollowed out inside so that they can hit it as drums. And it was very important for our cultural ceremonies, our dances traditional dances, and uh, we use it to pass messages to other villages in times of uh, great uh, importance, like uh, a meeting or, or a death in the family. Uh, people will speak the drums and send messages like, uh, like text messages. Four others from Vanuatu also took part in the exhibition. Now, you are all always busy with work. Where did you find the time to do your art? Oh, yes, it was very hectic. We were we were working till around five every day, and we had to push ourselves. Uh, we had to find time. Sometimes we did it late at night, and then seven o'clock uh, after work, after dinner. Uh, sometimes we did it on the weekends. We set aside that time on Mondays. That's what we did. And we told our bosses that maybe can we go off, we go home early at maybe around three 
so we can uh, do the painting and the bosses were very kind to us and they let us do the art. That's how we did it. William, why is it important for you or other Pacific Islanders in foreign settings to show their culture? That's a very interesting question because we know Melanesian Melanesian countries, we have a diverse culture, a lot of tradition. And for us to be in in, uh, New Zealand and Australia, we we were very happy to show it because... uh, most times when, when we meet a New Zealander or an Australian, they ask us where we're from and we have to point it out in the map because <laughs> our country, they don't know where Vanuatu is or Solomon or Fiji is. And for us to show our culture and where we came from, uh, our traditions, our, our culture, for us to show that, it's like showing us, showing them a part of ourselves and a part of our way of life back home. During the exhibition, William, what was the reaction of the visitors to the exhibition? They were very interested. They were very interested. They came and asked for more information. We sat down, talked to them for a while. But because we were so busy at work, we only had so much time. And Right now, they're talking about uh, wanting to develop the program, and they want to make this into a a program so that it can continue, so others can join in and we can show our culture overseas and uh, let other people know our traditions and uh, what we were brought up with. Recently, Vanuatu was hit by two cyclones, what did your group do to help your people back home? There was a group that did a fundraising in town, and one of our groups did a fundraising in town. They they played string band and they got, they had donations and the Marlborough community uh, they donated. They, they gave us a big donation to send back home to our families, for us personal workers, for our personal families. We sent back home our page, our page and our checks. We sent back home the money we earned to help our family through the, the very hard times because uh, the cyclone has damaged a lot. That was Vanuatu seasonal worker William Bulle speaking to the ABC's Carolyn Tiraman. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Carl Evans will be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. And you can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia through the Listen app.